back to the Theology Podcast. This is C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor, and I'm serving in Washington State in the city of Vancouver. Uh, you might know of the city of Vancouver because the city of Portland, Oregon is a suburb of it. Anyway, <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's where I am. And, but I'm back. I'm back with the gang again here in Connecticut. So uh, the Wiley family, we're jet setters now. We have our, our East Coast house and our West Coast house. <laughs> and we fly back and forth between the houses. Anyway, so uh, we're back in Connecticut, and uh, the gang is together, and we're going to be talking about some stuff. I've written some stuff myself. I'm still breathlessly waiting. I'm trying not to hold my breath because I could die for the decision from the Tolkien estate on the book on Bombadil. So the Bombadil book uh, is uh, right now in the hands of the estate and they are reviewing it uh, because I went over the limit on quotations. They're working on ent time. <laughs> There's an ent moot, and it's just rising and in, 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 you know, sort of getting quieter uh, with, with the days. But anyway. But so, the good news, Chris, is I think they probably determined that you are not an orc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hope not anyway. That's right. Uh, for those of the, 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 the gang out there in podcast land who live in Oklahoma or in North Texas, I'm going to be in Oklahoma in uh, April, April 17th. I'm speaking at uh, the uh, Timberline Fellowship Church. I think that's what it is, Timberline Fellowship. Anyway, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a big church right there in Norman, Oklahoma. And uh, if I've got the information wrong uh, about the name and so forth, please forgive me. I'm, I'm kind of operating right now after having done one show and uh, don't have my, my stuff in front of me. But uh, I'm really looking forward to it, getting to be with the folks down there in Oklahoma. And uh, it's going to be packed. I'm ex- they're flying me in. They're flying me in on a Friday afternoon. I'm flying out on Saturday afternoon. Hmm. So it's just like packed. It's just going to be because I have to be back uh, in Washington for church. So anyway, that's, that's something that I'm looking forward to. But enough about me. So, Tom, tell us about you. I will not be in Oakland. <laughs> that I know of. Uh, Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. And uh, got a book project coming this summertime. Looking forward to that. And I'll be letting people know more about that as we get closer. And I am Glenn Sunshine. I am a retiring professor of history from Central Connecticut State University, and I never tire of saying that. Um, And I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I'll be speaking in a few places uh, in May as well. I will be in in Phoenix, actually, for the Colson Fellows graduation, May 1st. Nice. And I will be speaking at one of the sessions of Ken Boa's retreat at the Cove, outside of Asheville, North Carolina, on the second weekend in May. Excellent, excellent. Well, I had to get my information correct, so I looked it up. It's the Timber Creek Fellowship, and uh, it's in Norman, Oklahoma, Saturday, April 17th, the Man Up Conference. So if you look up Timber Creek Fellowship, there is very prominently displayed there a link uh, to the conference, and uh, it would really be great to see it. And I apologize for not getting it right the first time. Okay, so uh, it's Glenn's day. What are we talking about today, Glenn? 
Well, I thought we'd pick up on uh, a little bit more on some of the stuff we ended with on the show we recorded on St. Patrick's Day yeah. about uh, the ancient Irish church. Nice. And uh, there's a lot more going on there than meets the eye. We know very little about it for the most part. Um, in my entire church history program, um, studying specifically church history, I learned nothing about the Irish church. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until I started doing medieval history at a secular university that they told me anything about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And yeah. so I've been studying it quite a bit since. Um, actually, though, before we start with the Irish church, I want to go back to Irish paganism. Okay. Because that, it turns out, is really important here. Um, and I mentioned a little bit of this at the end of Tom's show, but let's let's just start off with some basics about uh, pre-Christian Irish pagan religion. Okay, we'll we'll start off with the fact that you know the priests were known as druids. Um, it uh, to become a druid though was about a twenty-year process, according wow. to the sources that we have. Hmm. You know, this is uh, seminary times five or yeah. more. Right. Right. Um, and basically, the Druids were the repository of all the knowledge of the culture. You had to memorize everything. Got you. You know, you had to know history. You had to know law. You had to know um, certainly uh, religion, uh, the legends and myths, the rituals. Uh, you had to learn magic. You had to learn how to use your voice to imitate all kinds of natural sounds, ranging from thunder to bird calls. Huh. Um, you had to, uh, you had to learn music. You had to learn poetry. You know, on and on and on. You, you were the one who held the entire culture in your mind because they didn't write anything down. Right, right. And the fact that they don't write anything down is going to come back to haunt us in a bit. That's important. Yeah, yeah. Along, now, but this is fascinating because I think that if you were to sort of survey people, just man or woman in the street interviews, and if you asked them, did it take a lot to become a druid? I don't think anybody would know how to respond. But my gut level is is that people probably thought it was some kind of charisma, charismatic thing. that just kind yeah. of, you were touched by some spirit, and the next thing you know, you were a druid or something. Yeah, and, and they weren't these happy-go-lucky little nature-worshipping spirits with golden sickles harvesting the mistletoe. Right, right. Um, the religion was, well, let's put it this way. The three most powerful gods in the Celtic pantheon. Uh, you had uh, Tyrannus, who is known as the Thunderer. He's actually, in some ways... Uh, a parallel to Norse god Thor. Yeah, yeah. You had Essus, who was the sort of like the symbolized the chief of the tribe, and you had Teotatus, who represented the people. It's the same root as Teuton or, or Deutsch mm. German, you know, oh, the, yeah. the, the, the mm -hmm. folk. Yeah. Okay. Now, each of these required human sacrifices. Interesting. Tyrannus, most famously, this is the thunder god. Uh, Julius Caesar talks about how prisoners of war were burned alive in wicker cages. Hmm. That was to Tyrannus. Got it. It appears that he also accepted sacrifices by bashing people's heads in with an axe. Uh -huh. uh, typically three blows because the Celts did everything in threes. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, Essus, the chieftain, um, did sacrifice by, let's see, yeah, hanging, garroting, uh, or impaling. Hmm. Right, so these are the peaceful 
sort of savages that <laughs> yeah. Rousseau told us about. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And Tirtatus um, <laughs> drowned his victims. Well, that's uh, the most humane, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, th- this is the religion that the Druids yeah, oversaw. Yeah, it yeah. was it was incredibly... Yeah, it, so a Druid wasn't yeah. somebody you crossed. It wasn't somebody you ever wanted to get mad at you. Right. Yeah, and, and the Druids, along with the two sort of levels below them, the... the Men of art, as they called them, the, the bards, uh, and the, there was an intermediate level, too, that went by various names, uh, were the only ones in Celtic society that could actually move between tribes and culture, well, tribes, tribal boundaries, kingdom boundaries, and things like that. Mm. They were sort of recognized as universal. When Pat- so they're kind of like the Levites of that world. Yeah, almost. Yeah. When, when Patrick hmm. uh, was uh, kidnapped, uh, it appears, in fact, that he was owned by a druid. There's a fair likelihood of that, which I think was a providential act because it allowed Patrick to understand the culture, to get to know the culture, the religion, and everything else. I just had an inspiration. (laughs) We got to talk to the folks who own the Boston Celtics. They need to change their, 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 their mascot from a leprechaun to a druid. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's just such a powerful thing. Yeah. You know, think about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, and, and I could just hear the announcer. The Celtics are killing them. <laughs> yeah, that's what we want to see. Um, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, yeah. Um, Let's hope those well, days aren't coming soon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, th- now... I think all of that is important when we look at what happens when Patrick arrives. Yeah. Uh, and again, some of this I talked about briefly last time, but one of the first points, which I know I mentioned last time, is that many of his early converts were Druids. Hmm. So this guy has guts, if nothing else. Yeah. Patrick had un- undoubtable courage. But many of his early converts were Druids. These people who knew everything about their culture right. realized that there was something off and they recognized truth in what Patrick or hope at the very least in what Patrick was saying that they didn't have in their own Hmm. religion Um, I suspect I can't prove this there's absolutely no source that indicates this but I suspect Patrick's argument went something along the lines of your gods ask you to sacrifice your children to them the true God sacrificed his son for you right you know, and that I think that that would have been a powerful, powerful argument to them. Yeah, if nothing else, it would have been a, a non sequitur. It would have been some sort of thing that just what? Yeah, catch their attention. Yeah. Ab- ab- absolutely shocking. Well, okay, then Christianity comes to Ireland. It spreads among the various nobles. It spreads among the druids, and so on. And you begin getting Christianity established within Ireland. Now, if you are a pagan Ir- Irishman and you convert to a new religion, and you are figuring, well, you gotta become a priest or something like that, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I need to study for 20 years. Right. Mm-hmm. I need to know everything there is to know about this culture. Hmm. I need to know the history. I need to know the scriptures. I certainly need to know the scriptures, and, and so on. So what do the Irish do? They begin studying. Hmm. Now, the problem is that they spoke um, a language which we can call Gaelic, right? Mm -hmm. Technically not correct, but they spoke a Celtic language. Uh, They were never conquered by the Romans, largely because the Romans thought, you know, they're really tough warlike people and we could probably take them, but it will cost a lot of money and a lot of lives and 
what's in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's in, in, you know, supply chains and, you yeah, know, and, it's way out there from well, their perspective. Well, yeah, and, and there, was, there was no advantage to them to owning it. They did, right. there, there were trading centers on the, the coast and things like that, but that's about it. And they were like, if it's anything like England where we've been, it's just not really that way. <laughs> so, so, so what ends up happening? They have to, if they're going to learn the scriptures, they have to learn to read. They're an illiterate culture. They're an oral culture. Right. Further, they have to learn to read in a foreign language. Yeah, yeah. And what actually multiple foreign languages, because they're not just learning Latin, they're learning Greek and Hebrew. And then on top of that, well, at this period, all three languages were written as an unbroken string of letters, no word spaces, no punctuation, no capitalization. Now, I, you know, we've all seen these ancient documents, and when you, when you look at them, you, you just say, what? How? <laughs> you know, now, How could they have read this stuff? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I've done experiments with this, even with students, where I've taken a document, I've eliminated all punctuation, word spaces, and turned it into all caps and handed it to them. And for the most part, they could read it on first try. At most, uh, they might stumble over something, but then they'll get it the second time through. If you're a native speaker and you're fluent at reading, you can that's, do it. That's, that's the thing. But yeah. if you're doing it in a foreign language, this is a little bit tricky. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. what did the Irish do? They decided, well, you know, what's important is that we understand the text, not that we write it the way they did. Hmm. So the Irish began introducing word spaces, interesting, rudimentary punctuation. Thank God for the Irish capitalization. <laughs> now, and, and the drawings with the M. Yeah, yeah. Now, in the process of doing this, what happens is that reading goes from being a secondary source of knowledge. You know, even in the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. learning was primarily oral, and you only had written things to remind you of what you learned orally. It goes from being a secondary way of learning to a primary way of learning. And in essence, they start on the process of creating modern reading. Interesting. That's a, that's a product of the Irish. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You know, I, I know you got loads of information to throw at us, Glenn, but I want to reflect it quickly. Sure. And just yeah, make a just couple of stop me anytime. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I think really is striking about this is we're talking about the periphery of the, of the world. The periphery of the world changed the world. Yep, it, and it, it happened, and it shouldn't surprise us because it happened before. I mean, one of the objections that some Romans had to the message of the, of the, of the gospel is that, you know, if your God is really everything you say he is, he would have known that Rome is where all the action is, and that's where he should have showed up. Why would he pick a backwater like that's Judea? Right. That's yeah. right. But my theory is is that change always happens from the periphery. It never happens in the center because the center. By its by its nature is uh, the status quo. It's 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 trying to protect the interests that are already established. It's not and extend them. It's not a place where innovation occurs. It's not a place where uh, new educational models develop. It's and it's not the it's not the new center. It's always changed from the periphery. So the idea that you need to go to New York City in order to impact the world <laughs> is wrong. <laughs> Where, where the world will change is from someplace in a hinterland. Mm. That's where it happens. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. The, the thing that is worth noting, I suppose, if the first right here is that, the, and this is, this is the only example we have of this, God providentially prepared and used pagan Irish culture with all of its nastiness. Right, mm. right to create a cultural context so that when the gospel came, 
Ireland rapidly became known as the island of saints and scholars. Yeah, hmm. right. Yep. In, in the same way, if you look, for example, at Korea, um, Korea, you know, is a, a Buddhist country historically, um, and they specialized, the, the particular ver version of, of Buddhism, they had specialized a lot in meditation. They would go and they would meditate all night and then go to work in the morning. When Christianity comes, they transfer these, this mental discipline mm. that they acquired through meditation into prayer. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the Koreans don't think twice about spending all night praying. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it. You know, so, mm. so one of the things that, that is worth noting here is that as we look at the pagan world and we think this is completely in the hands of Satan, there are things in there that God is, is grabbing hold of and is going to use in a powerful way when the gospel comes there. This is, again, let me just make a, a, a quick observation. Sure. Um, the Reformed, of all people, because we believe in providence and sovereignty, uh, have a kind of mental blockage when it comes to this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it has to do with our fidelity to Scripture. Now, I'm not trying to call that into question at all. But what happens is that we don't think that anything can happen that it doesn't have some kind of scriptural sort of uh, sort of uh, a direct uh, verse yeah. or passage or yeah. In other words, agency when it comes to God's working in the world has to be an outworking exclusively of the you know the the, the covenant people of God kind of working out you know their understandings of God's you know uh, law and so forth or or the gospel. Uh, we, we don't, you know, we have a, something called, uh, you know, common grace, but we, we think of that exclusively in terms of restraint. We don't think of it at all in terms of God's preparing a people for the gospel. Um, we don't think of it in any kind of creative sense. And so we kind of sh mentally shut down when it comes to literature or culture. It's only, it's only uh, insofar as uh, some legal... Uh, under you know sort of some some, some sort of legal uh, processes restraining evil, then we can say oh oh God is at work there, mm -hmm. but we don't think about it in any other way, yeah. which I think is something that is a, uh, I don't think it's endemic to the reform approach, but for some reason it's become the dominant way of thinking in the reform world. Yeah, I think you're right, and this also ties us right back into the the episode we did on Tolkien a while ago, where uh, we talked about Tolkien's. His sense that what you need to do is recover mythology as myth, but you needed to Christianize it to avoid going down the evil roads that paganized myths can do. Right. But you can take those myths and you can Christianize them, and that will promote the good, the virtues that are in those myths uh, in society. Uh, without the without the dross of the pagan component of it, right. and that's exactly what the, the forget the mythological part of it. That's exactly what the Irish are doing here by taking the best of their pagan culture and Christianizing it. Yeah, right. which uh, it's funny. Uh, we have we, uh, some of our fans out there have these uh, fun little pages. We're tied to Grumblers is one yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. Grumblers. And yeah. one of the uh, people who frequently writes um, put a little post on. Um, it was talking within the reformed world, I guess, in, in the U.S., of, of it, part of this kind of what I call the, the, the kind of reductionist biblis, biblicists, where right. they were criticizing classical education or classical Christian schools because for some reason they are indebted to the humanist traditions versus some kind of pure biblicism 
Right. As and this is, I think, this is where I think. I mean, first of all, is in that kind of division is already a kind of uh, antenna that's closed off to a lot of what Scripture is saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also an antenna that's closed off to everything that Calvin did. That's right. <laughs> well, and again, they actually criticize Calvin as being too indebted to Aquinas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not that Aquinas again. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. You're, you, you're, that's, uh, right. that's right. He wasn't reformed enough. <laughs> we gotta re, we gotta get rid of Calvin. He wasn't reformed enough. That's right. And 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 it's that kind of ever. And, and I think this is what what, what I I is see. This just, is this our version of the guillotine? guillotine? Yeah, it's you it's, know you're you're not reformed enough. Yeah, well, it's just, we're going to kill you now. This, it's almost a, a per perverting <laughs> of true spirituality, in the sense that it's trying to get at some kind of. Um, pure essence of something by continuously ridding it of all kinds of good things that God gave us. That's right. right I mean, God, that's, right. I mean that, that's the whole, I mean, that, and I think reform have had been tempted towards that. I mean, one is idolatry because of their right to criticize the idolatry and the, 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 the way in which we become enslaved to, to uh, our loves being malformed, right, around idols. Um, but they didn't mean by that that there isn't renewal of all things. Yeah. yeah. And renewal, it's not, it's not new creation ex nihilo, it's renewal. That's right. And Well, I do think that, mo <laughs> I do think that there are, are people in the Protestant world who do think in those terms. They think about total obliteration. Yeah, yeah. Starting from scratch. Yeah. And it, so a tree is somehow, uh, you know, uh, irredeemable. It's just not, it's not possible to redeem an oak tree. That's right. That's right. Or to see anything of, of its, its being a creature of God. Right. Which I think that's where the, for me, that's where the perversion sits. The inability for people to see creation as still the creation of God. That's the whole point of talking about its redemption. Yeah, and by the way, folks, in Puck Glassland, when we say creature, we're not talking about the creature double feature back in the day where creature was synonymous with monster. Creature just means created. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Glenn, Glenn, so, Glenn can't find his words well, now. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of waiting to see if you guys are done. <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, um, so so where this goes in Ireland is... Um, Interestingly enough, Irish Christianity wasn't built around dioceses and, and uh, bishops. It was built around monasteries and abbots. Now, I've seen people who want to take that in some directions that perhaps are questionable. But Well, the interesting thing, though, is that Irish monasteries were not like monasteries anywhere else. Okay. Uh, a lot of them were really um, anchored in the clan structure so that the head of the clan was the abbot, the head of the monastery. Interesting. Which means you actually have married monks in Ireland. Okay. Now, okay. not all of them were, but, right. but you actually have monasteries with married monks. I mean, you know, married mm. abbots and so on. Right, right. Um, now, the two founders of Irish monasticism, actually, you, you can make an argument that there are at least two, maybe three types of monasteries in Ireland that are really different from each other. Um, but the, the two traditional founders of Irish monasticism are one, a guy named Finian of Clonfert, mm. and the other, Enda of Arran. Mm. And Finian is associated really strongly with the, what I would describe as sort of the, the Chinobitic or the, the community style of monasticism 
frequently connected to clans and so on, although that's interestingly enough not how Finian's monastery of Clonfort starts. Uh, more on that in a minute. Uh, Aaron, uh, Enda out in Aaron is more of a almost an Egyptian style of monastery. They actually had contact with with Egypt and knew the Egypt, the huh. Desert Fathers. Yeah. Huh. And it's a much more austere, well, Clonvert uh, was austere as well, but it, it's a much more um, almost primitive kind of monasticism, more centered around hermitage and things like that, right. Right. but essentially com- communal hermits. Yeah. Technically called a Skatek monastery. So everybody's like together, but they don't talk. But they stay in their own cells until they come together for worship. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> or, you know, or doing collective chores that need to be done. Um, Scalic Michael would be an example of one of those kinds of monasteries, if you're okay. familiar with that. Okay. But the, the way this worked, the, the, the Irish had a concept of uh, three kinds of martyrdom is the word that they would use. Okay. The first was green martyrdom. You got to love how people classify things and break them down. Mm-hmm. I always just thought of martyrdom as martyrdom. But yeah. There, there, there's <laughs> more than one kind. You're thinking of what they called red martyrdom. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? That's what they called it. <laughs> it sounds like something contemporary. Um, well, I'm thinking, obviously, that's blood. Right. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. So, but, 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 but we're starting but, with green. green. Green martyrdom is where... It's uh, when you you're a, v- a vegan? <laughs> well, okay, so let, 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 let's take a look. Let, let's take that a would look be martyrdom for me. <laughs> I'm dying, I'm dying. Let, let, Give me some beef. Let, let's take a look at Finian's career. He, he, goes, he, he travels to France, to the monastery of St. Martin of Tours, which was known for being a very strict, austere, ascetic monastery. He probably studied in Wales as well, and then came back to Ireland, where, after some travels, the legend says he started the monastery at Scalig Michael. He's going to settle in the Boyne Valley and set up his monastery at Clonfort. But he's going to do this by basically going there and becoming a hermit and living off the land. Green martyrdom. Hmm. Okay, so living off the land is yeah. what we're living, living to. as a hermit. Okay, uh, now, now why is that martyr? Well, well, of course, martyr means witness, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's just simply tied to that. Oh, well, it, it actually <laughs> is tied to an earlier way that martyrdom was classified, which we're com- about to hit. Okay. He became well known as a scholar and a and a holy man, and so other people came and joined him there. This is this is what always makes me laugh about hermits. Leave me alone. You're famous. I want to be with you. Leave me alone. Yeah. Well, he he wasn't thinking about being left alone. He started that way. But when people came, he was very happy to organize them into a monastery write a rule for them, and thus you get white martyrdom. <laughs> and white martyrdom is actually an older term. Green martyrdom only exists in Ireland, as far as I know. White martyrdom is, an, is a, a, a much older term that goes, well, by much, a few centuries older, perhaps, that um, refers to living in a monastery because at a point in which, you know, when you're looking at the church in the 200s, there were a lot of people who believed that if you really wanted to demonstrate how genuine your faith was, you needed to get yourself killed or at the yeah, very yeah. least tortured. 
Yeah. I'm here to die, but I'll sit her for two. It, and it was a serious, it was a serious fad. Please, it, please it, hit me. It was, it, it, it was a serious thing. The, the church father, Origen, yeah. uh, at one point tried to get himself martyred when he heard that the persecutions were coming, but he, he didn't actually succeed because his mother hid his clothes and he was, and he was ashamed to go outside naked. And we owe him on first principles. <laughs> So for those Mom, of you who thought you a discussion, <laughs> for those of you who thought a discussion of the ancient Celtic Church would be boring, um, I can't go okay. out and get killed so, this way. I gotta, I gotta at least be dressed. So dress for success. Yeah. Um, so so um, it, once that, once Christianity becomes legalized and that route of martyrdom is shut to you, you're no, they're no longer executing Christians. How do you? prove the genuineness of your faith. Those are the good old days. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you proved it. You proved it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I just wish I could go out and get killed like (laughs) (laughs) You're you're out there near Seattle. (laughs) Best beware. (laughs) So in order to prove the genuineness of your faith, in order to achieve martyrdom, you can't get red martyrdom, so the closest you can get is white martyrdom, reject the world, live an ascetic, austere lifestyle in a monastery, living as if you were truly dead to the world. Yeah, there's, there's this death. So that's white martyrdom. Death to your life in the world is, is it, this, the spirituality of baptism. I mean, witness and and the, the, the putting to death of your life in this world. And so they, they, they brought those very close together. Yeah. yeah. So in any event, Finian develops this monastery and it becomes one of the most remarkable educational centers, considering they have virtually nothing to do this with, hmm. um, in the world at the time. There, there are 12 major figures in Irish church history that are known as the 12 Apostles of Ireland. Hmm. Finian taught all of them. Hmm. Wow, wow. My personal favorite was a guy named Kiran the Younger. Uh, Kiran was the son of a carpenter and chariot maker, um, not a um, high-class kind of thing, but he ends up... Well, I mean, being a wheelwright was a pretty significant skill. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, but he wasn't, he wasn't a noble. He wasn't from the gotcha, upper classes. Gotcha. He was a craftsman. Gotcha. And Finian... Uh, he, now, Finian, the other thing that Finian would do is once he had you trained, once he figured you, you knew your stuff, he'd kick you out of the monastery <laughs> and then say, go start your own. Got it. So he does this with Kiran as, as a young man. Uh, Kiran will, will travel. He'll go spend some time with Enda uh, on the uh, Aran Islands. And then he will, Aaron will, uh, excuse me, Enda will tell him to go set up your monastery in the center of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, a little bit of Irish geography. There are no roads. Most of Ireland is forest or bog. Mm. The closest thing you have to a road is, well, there are two of them. One of them is the River Shannon, mm. which is a navigable river, and it goes from the west coast of Ireland inward, roughly east-west. Now, now, let's stop here a second, just because most people today do not associate Ireland with forests. You're right. 
mm-hmm. in this period it was it was very definitely mm-hmm. forested and bogged gotcha okay now <clears throat> the other thing you have running north south is something called the esker the esker was the remains of the last glacier that that flattened ireland and it is a low ridge of land maybe a, a yard across at the top that runs roughly north south in ireland and people would use that as sort of a road or a path because it was relatively high ground and it let you get through the box. Okay. Kiran went to where the Esker crossed the Shannon and started his green martyrdom there. In other words, he placed himself literally at, at the, the crossroads, crossroads of Ireland. Hmm. And I think... Kiran was making a statement with that. It was right on the borders of two kingdoms. I think he was claiming Ireland for God. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And a monastery. It's the fact that it's cross mm-hmm. was interesting to think about. A monastery yeah. will develop there, and that monastery is going to become a major center of education. Hmm. Um, it really, arguably, the most important monastery in Ireland. It's called Clonmac Noise. And its ruins are amazing. They're, I mean, if you ever have the opportunity to go to, to Ireland, you've got to try to make it to Clonmac Noise. It is, it's stunning. Mm. Um, it's worth noting that it was an educational institution. Like I said, it, it, it becomes a, a major center for education, including a gentleman that you may have heard of, a guy named Alcuin of York. Yeah. Alcuin studied mm. at Clonmac Noise went to he was went to become uh, to York where he became a deacon and mm. the head of the school there and then when Charlemagne wanted to revive education in his empire he wanted to find the best scholar he could find in Europe and that was Alcuin mm, huh. so the the Carolingian Renaissance as it's called was done by Alcuin from a Celtic church in York but who himself had been trained at Clonmac Noise and this monastery started by Kiran. Hmm. Yeah. Now, now you're getting into the <clears throat> kind of the deep weeds of the detail of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, what comes to mind right now is that book. I can't remember the author. How the Irish Saved Civilization, Tom Cahill. Yes, Cahill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that's kind of what you're getting into here. Right. So <laughs> the, the point being that education returned to Europe because of a guy trained at an Irish monastery. Right, that, right. That's really what it comes down to. Now, now let's, let's stop and think about this a little bit because we have a, a number of people that uh, are concerned about the future of our civilization. Uh, it's, you know, of course, connected historically to this. But when we think about the West, you know, Western Europe, you know, sort of those parts of the world that have been, uh, you know, sort of, colonized by and then inhabited by people who are part of that civilization. What, what we're worried about today is, you know, preserving that civilization. But p- paradoxically, when we think about that story, the, how the Irish saved civilization, they, they, that the objective was not to save civilization. Right. And the objective was just to do what's right and to, to serve God. Right. And, and we'll actually get, if we have time, uh, we'll get into someone that Tom mentioned last time, a guy named Colin Bannis, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. who is going to be very, very important here. Um, it's worth noting, by the way, Kiran died of plague within a year or so of founding Clonmac Noise. Hmm. And the other, apparently the other apostles of Ireland were rather thankful that he died. Huh. Um, Col- St. Columbo, who was not thankful for hmm. it, commented, though, that, well, first of all, he died at age 33. 
Mm. Okay. Um, and, he, and this was seen as a mark of his special holiness because he right. died at the same age as Jesus. <laughs> right. But along with that, Columba actually said that it's a good thing that God took him when he did because otherwise there'd be no one in Ireland left for them to convert. <laughs> um, he was that effective. Right, 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 right. Your, your, your prayer. Yeah. Take him away. I want to have some people to convert. You yeah. know? Um, you know, his, his teacher had said at one point he, he had actually, Quran had lent his copy of the Gospel of Matthew to someone else. And his teacher was quizzing them on the Gospel of Matthew, and Kiran only knew half of it because the other half he'd lent out. <laughs> and the other students sort of laughed at him because he didn't have the other half of the Gospel of Matthew memorized. <laughs> and noticed the standard. Right, right. And yeah. uh, the, the teacher said he may know only half of Matthew, but he's going to get half of Ireland. <laughs> right, right. That's so, right. Um, Columbus is another interesting one. Uh, he's the guy who settles the island of Iona and, and um, right, right. Uh, ends up uh, converting a lot of Pictland, what we'd call Scotland, and right. then ultimately through there, Lindisfarne and other uh, hmm. uh, monasteries in northern England. He's got, he's got an interesting story on his own as well. Um, but let, let's jump ahead in time. We can come back to Col Columba if we want to. Uh, later, let's go to Columbanus. Uh, mm -hmm. Columbanus, uh, as a young man, was, well, apparently he was really, really good looking. And, you know, he, he knew his psalms, he had the psalms memorized and all yeah, this kind of thing. Yeah, women don't mind ugly saints. Let's yeah. see. And, well, and, and he was, it's he the good-looking guys who have sworn to a life of celibacy that really bothered well, them. Well, you see, at, at, this point he, at this point he wasn't. And, and he was thinking of maybe joining the church, but he had all these women who were after him, a situation I cannot at all relate to. But, but um, he, he ended up going to a wise woman in his village and saying to or, you know, this is the situation. What what should I do? And the woman said to him, "Remember Samson, <laughs> David, Solomon. <laughs> Women are trouble. Go to the monastery." This is a wise woman. <laughs> so so Columbanus went home and told his mother, and she got hysterical and lay down across the threshold of the house to try to keep him from leaving. He stepped over her yeah, and yeah. went to the monastery. Moms and saints. There's a lot of interesting history between moms and saints. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Columbanus was in the monastery. He excelled in, in his studies. He became the head of the school in the monastery at Bangor. And then at around the age of 40, he decided he believed that God was calling him to go on his peregrinatio, a Latin word that means pilgrimage. <laughs> Although in Ireland, it meant something a little bit different from what we think of as pilgrimage. Um, in Ireland, it was typically understood to be unplanned wanderings, going wherever God sent you oh, yeah. with, with the expectation that you would never again see your native land, never, per, go, never come home. Peregrination. Right. Peregrinate, yeah. yep. Yeah. yeah. So as a peregrinus, you would be leaving with the intention of never coming back. Got you. Um, it's sort of like the missionaries who used to pack their belongings in their coffins and yeah. bring them to the mission field. Well, yeah, it's not. Now, a, it's those, those, now, now, think about this. Mm -hmm. How how would that go over today? If like if we were sending missionaries out, and okay, uh, like the like the the last thing you need to do before you go is build your coffin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just take that with you because, I mean, we're not going to be there to bury yeah. you. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, a lot of the pilgrimages, as we know, have now become journeys of self-discovery. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, not quite what they had in mind. Not, not what was going on here. Yeah. So, so he, he sailed, and now th this is one of the key things to remember. Ireland is 
becomes the island of saints and scholars at a time when the Roman Empire in Western Europe is falling apart. Right. Education collapses. It got to the point where... Boy, does that sound familiar. It got to a point where if you ran into someone who knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, it was an Irish monk or a homeschooler. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the early days. Yeah, Yeah. we're we're jumping ahead. (laughs) Yeah. So so in in any event, um, and, and, and the... The Frankish kingdom, modern-day France and part of Germany, um, was ruled by the Merovingians at this point. And this was a dynasty that found completely new ways of being corrupt. <laughs> um, the, the, well, you know, I think we've got a, we got, we're, we're giving a run for the money yeah. right now. Uh, not even close, actually. Um, the, the queen mother was a woman named Brunhilde. Of course. And Brunhilde, actually, this Brunhilde is the foundation for all of those legends. Of, of Brunhilde. She's a historical figure. Yeah. Well, um, but the thing is, I mean, what a great name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to put this in perspective. What's your name? Brunhilde? To, to put this in perspective, she got mad at one bishop and had him tortured to death over a period of weeks. I mean, this is. She lives up to her name. Yeah, this yeah. is. This is. Yeah, I mean, we, we got some nasty people around today, but they're... They haven't quite she, got that far. She's got them beat. Now, what was but, the date right uh, around we're, there? We're in the uh, 500s, late 500s. Gotcha, gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, yeah late, very late 500s. Okay. Right. So, um, Colin Bannis was born the year St. Benedict died. Yeah, huh. so we're not talking too far out from Augustine yeah, and, that's and what the I was influence. Just about. Yeah, yeah, right. So... <clears throat> Columbanus lands with his 12 followers. They always like to send 12, yeah, although Quran only had 10. But Columbanus lands with his 12, and he begins preaching. He lands in Karnak in Brittany. Huh. And he begins preaching his way across France. And everywhere he goes, people are shocked, because frankly, the church is inept and corrupt at this point, mm-hmm. and they've never seen anything like him. Well, there's another thing that we can relate to. Yeah. yeah. So these powerful, <laughs> powerful sermons, he, he ends up... He ends up getting as far as what was then the sub-kingdom of Burgundy. And the, the king of Burgundy, a guy named Gontram, uh, offered Columbanus a ruined Roman fort at a place called Onagre to set up a monastery. <clears throat> he does. And so many people from all walks of life flock to him because they, he's got something. He's, he, is, he is austere. He is strict. He has got a, a no-compromising religion. And... People were absolutely attracted to it yeah, because yeah. of the weakness of what they had. Yeah, yeah. There's something to, to learn from that, too. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so, as a result, uh, he rapidly had to start new monasteries at a place called Fontaine and another at Luxoy. Uh, Luxoy <coughs> is going to be particularly important in our, sto- in our story later. Uh, it will found a daughter monastery at a place called Corby. Hmm. Keep, keep the names in mind. We're going to hmm. hear them again. But then the, the bishops in the area were really unhappy, okay, because <laughs> on the continent, bishops oversee monasteries. In Ireland, monasteries oversee bishops. Mm, interesting. And Columbanus was not going to listen to these bishops. They were, as far as he was concerned, a bunch of inept, incompetent people who weren't doing their job. Mm. <laughs> and they decided to straighten Columbanus out, and so they summoned him to a synod uh. to basically tell him what to do. 
Colin Bannister replied, I've got way too much to do. I've got a better idea. Why don't you spend your synod trying to figure out how you ought to do your jobs? <laughs> um, my, my paraphrase of the letter. He then sent a letter to the Pope in which, in a very polite way, he basically said, these bishops under you are a bunch of bozos. <laughs> you need to do something about this. These guys are your responsibility. You need to tell them to straighten up and fly right. right so yeah. he's giving the Pope advice. <laughs> um, but then he made the fatal, or in his case, nearly fatal error. <laughs> he pulled a John the Baptist and criticized the sexual morality of the royal family. Uh-huh. Brunhilde got mad. Yeah, yeah. And so Brunhilde... I'm not sure why she didn't order him to be executed or assassinated. I suspect it may be because he was simply too popular. Yeah. So instead, she ordered him exiled. He and all the Irish monks had to leave. The monasteries could stay, but he and the monks had to leave. So they marched him across France, put him on board a ship to send him back to Bangor. The ship sets sail. It goes a short distance, runs into an enormous storm, and is driven aground. The ship captain said, you guys are a bunch of Jonas, get off my boat. (laughs) So they get off the boat and they proceed to preach across the Frankish kingdom again. (laughs) This time, they end up in Switzerland. And they get to a ruined church on a lake. Uh, It had been a Christian church, had been converted into a pagan temple. There was an idol in it and all of that. But it turns out that one of Colin Bannis's guys actually knew the local language. The Irish were really good at this kind of thing. And so they, I don't know, blew a trumpet or something. They got everybody's attention, got them all gathered around. They hauled the statue out of the church and threw it in the lake. (laughs) And this guy preached a sermon to them, and they converted. Yeah, well, he wasn't struck dead by the god. Right. They converted, and they started a monastery there. Mm -hmm. The guy who did this, his name was Gaul. And oh, so yeah. the monastery and the canton that surrounds it now is Sancta Gallen, St. Gall. So they bring Christianity back in there. But then Columbanus did something to annoy the local governing officials, <laughs> and they kicked him out. Right. This Gaul. guy wasn't winsome. How did he possibly win? Gaul, yeah, sort of the Doug Wilson of the era. Um, Gaul, um, Gaul stayed. Yeah. Because yeah. He, you know, he had a church here and all that. And Colin Bennett felt a little betrayed by this. But where is he going to go next? Well, it turns out that right across the Alps in Italy, northern Italy, was ruled by a people called the Lombards. And the Lombards were Aryans. Yeah, they yeah. were, quote, Christians who didn't believe in right. the deity of Christ. Right. Their king, Agilulf, however, had married a, an Orthodox Catholic Christian woman named Theodolinda. Hmm. And at Theodolinda's urging, Agilulf invited Columbanus to cross the Italian Alps and start a new monastery, which he does in, I think it's 612, uh, at a place called Bobbio. And he will die in 614. So hmm. he'll die a year or two later, and he's buried at Bobbio. Okay. Now, the thing, the thing about this story that's sort of buried in here is the significance of all of these monasteries. They were Irish monasteries, so they all became educational centers. Hmm. Bobbio, for example, the library at Bobbio was the model Umberto Eco used for the hmm. library oh, yeah. in uh. um, <laughs> what, Name, the of, the Name yeah. of the Rose. Name of the Rose, right. 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 Um, And when I was in grad school, I studied medieval Latin paleography. Paleography is the skill of reading ancient handwritings, but not only reading them, we had to be able to date 
the manuscript to within 50 years of when it was written and identify the monastery where the scribe was trained on the basis of the handwriting. Interesting. How, now, now that's a whole show in itself. Yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, I couldn't do it now, but when I yeah. was when I was up on it, I was you know I did I did well in the class. But the thing that's interesting is that when you're looking at the seventh eighth century, all of the hands we studied came from Corby, Luxoy, or Bobbio. Huh. Luxoy and Bobbio were started by Columbanus. Corby was a daughter monastery from Luxoy. Hmm. So virtually all of the literature we have from this period, at least the stuff that I encountered, came from monasteries that were started by Columbanus or their, their descendants. Hmm, yeah. This is a mark of the degree to which Ireland was reintroducing hmm. literacy, education, and all of those things into Europe. And then, of course, we see this again with Alcuin coming in to start all, the entire school system under Charlemagne, trained at Climac Noise. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating, you know, getting back to my earlier comment about that's not what they were up to. They, 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 they were, these were the, the fringe benefits, so to speak. Seek first the kingdom and these yeah. other things will be added these to These other as things well. come. Yeah. yeah. Because in a yeah. lot of ways, they saw these things as contributing to the kingdom. Right. But the focus was definitely the kingdom. Yeah. And right. it, it, the church's mission, centered in God, oriented to God, but bringing it to people and understanding it. <laughs> and it, this, this deep desire, like you said, in, in Ireland in particular, you have a people who already were used to, before their conversion, 20 years of preparation. How much that goes into, I mean, and, and that, you know, we often think people complain about the, how long their seminary degrees are. And in principle, yeah, they're too long in terms of the courses they're taking, because they're not studying theology and biblical right, languages. Right, right. They're teaching other things. And so, but there, this was, um, the pursuit of knowing God um, and all of the things associated with that, that was kind of, that was the aim. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I'd like to know a little more about how the uh, scholars in those, in those, those monasteries cared for themselves. I'm assuming that there was, um, you know, work that they performed on a, on a regular, you know, daily basis that, you know, help to keep them going, keep them... Keep them yeah, alive. I believe that's true, but you also have to remember that many of these get integrated into the clan structures. Right. So you have the clan around them, the, the, the extended community around them is integrated right into this life. Interesting. And so the people who were scholars were scholars, the people who were artists were artists, the people who were farmers were farmers, and they all, you know, they all did their work. I'm, I, I guess I'm, what I'm getting at is how, how did sort of the exchange occur? So... You know, you needed people who provided for these guys, and I'm, I'm, I'm not asking you at this moment to, to fill in the blank, but if you know it, that'd be great. Uh, actually, I'm not sure we know enough details about okay. how these things worked. I don't think they, that was not something they were interested in preserving. Got it, right, right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, you mean the, the question of, like, for example, how the, the monastic, for, with the education studies, continued to be able to supply for itself. Yeah, but yeah, basically, you know, yeah. so I'm a pastor, yeah. people, you know, m give offerings. Yeah. Out of those offerings, I'm supported. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got a division of labor that makes that what it is. I mean, we live in a, yeah. an industrial society where it'd be hard to imagine it could work any other way. Yeah. This is a different world. I'm yeah. just, you know... 
yeah, inter- I, puzzled I, I, or I suspect, in, intrigued that, like the Benedictine mm-hmm. monks, I suspect that they're doing labor too. Yeah. But yeah. I think, you know, in, in within Ireland itself, I suspect a lot of it is coming from the community. Yeah. So, yeah. for example, yeah. if you look at the monks on Scalig Michael, they're on an island that is so barren that they literally have to <laughs> import dirt to set up gardens. Wow. When and you have to import dirt, <laughs> yeah, you are they, dirt poor. <laughs> right. Quite literally. They, they had to rely on people on the mainland to grow wheat so they could have bread for communion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I know that not of these monasteries, but I know of others in, in the history of the church. And then you had some that, that whose service to the monastery was... <laughs> The growing of food or the the producing of, right. of certain things with others, they they had it was more the devotional, and the other was kind of the the academic. I don't know how this was set up, but then you also had fun people who funded it. I mean, think of Saint Jerome, right, and the translation of uh, which, right. I, which which I was reading lately. He was a very cantankerous and oh, he was and, yeah, and he was. a very uh, <laughs> you know so, so that, he'd that, wake up in the morning, go to the mouth of the cave, and curse the world. Yeah, he was, he, and his enemies <laughs> in particular. Um, but anyway, I mean, it was wealthy uh, women who inherited a lot of money that funded the project that led to the translation of the Vulgate, which ends up... And then he'd insult them for their makeup. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> but, I mean, you had certain cases where that scholarship was... Yeah, it was... I mean, the church... The, the, more people in the church, if you will, took an interest in its significance of propagating in the mission of well, the that's, church. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. I think that the whole idea of, of keeping these guys fed... Yeah, was uh, kind of part of the devotional life of, of yeah. a, a range of people. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but how are we doing for time? I oh, we got we, we got a little bit. We get maybe about ten minutes at most. Okay. Uh, two other quick stories. Going back the generation before Columbanus to the twelve apostles of Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of them was Saint Brendan. Okay. Brendan of Clonfort, St. Brendan the Navigator, as he's known. Huh. <laughs> Brendan studied in Ireland, studied under Finian, uh, spent some time in Wales studying in the monasteries there. And then when he decided it was time for his peregrinatio, when God was calling his peregrinatio, he looked back to the ancient Irish legends of Tiernanog, the land of eternal youth, which was in the West. Huh. Notice in the West, think Tolkien yeah, here. Yeah, right. Um, and he figured that this had to be a memory of the terrestrial paradise. So he believed that if he sailed west, he might be able to find that terrestrial paradise. Mm -hmm. So he got 12 companions together, got into a kurok, which is a wooden-framed leather-hulled boat. Okay, good. Hides spread over a it, leather frame with a sail. Yeah, we're not talking about a really sturdy v- vessel here. <laughs> Although they bob like corks. Yeah, yeah, I imagine they're hard to sink. But um, <laughs> Well, unless you get a hole in it, and then you're done. Right. Um, unless you can patch it. But he put up a sail and set sail to the west. And we know he sailed west, and we know he made it back. Huh. But... What it appears happened is he sailed from Ireland up to the Faroe Islands, which is described in the Peregrinatio as the island of birds, which the Peregrinatio is the, the uh, excuse me, the Navigatio, the navigation, the voyage of Brendan, is one of the most famous of the medieval legends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so he goes to the island of birds, which we can identify as the Faroes. He sails from there. He finds islands that are like 
uh, like made a solid crystal. Think icebergs. Yeah, okay. He passes, yep, yep, yep. he passes an island that is spewing fire, probably volcanoes. We're thinking Iceland here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and according to the legend, he makes it ultimately, uh, after many years of attempts, he makes it to the terrestrial paradise and then returns to Ireland. Any now, speculation is, on what that well, is? Well, <laughs> this is an interesting story, and uh, an Irish adventurer by the name of Tim Severn decided to find out if this could actually be done. He built a reproduction Kurok and sailed across the North Atlantic. <laughs> interesting. And he was able to identify point by point things in the Delegatio. Huh. Unfortunately, Tim had a uh, was playing bump and run with some icebergs, and uh-huh. he got a hole in the boat, <clears throat> and he actually had to repair it while on the sea with you know wow. the water, oh, the icy water from the North North wow. Atlantic coming wow. in. But he made it to Newfoundland. Huh. It strikes me as possible, and I would say I kind of think it's likely that Brendan actually made it to North America. Okay. And if you take it to the next step and get a little bit speculative, he sails down the coast of North America until he gets to the Caribbean, which is going to look like the terrestrial paradise for to somebody from medieval Ireland. And then he picks up the Gulf Stream, which it turns out, if you grab it right, will take you straight to Ireland. Right, right. It would, yeah. So this, like I said, becomes one of the most famous legends in... So how, medieval, long, how long did this trip take? Do we know? Well, in the Navigatio, it takes years. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, but um, we don't we don't know for sure. But we know he makes it back to Ireland, and he lives out his life there. Founds a monastery, Clonfort, which is always known as Brendan of Clonfort. Yeah. There's another Brendan of somewhere else. And um, it, there's a good possibility that Columbus was aware of this and figured that, ah. that Brendan made it to Japan. Hmm. Oh, so he, 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 of course, he didn't know what was in between. Right. Yeah. 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 So that that's Brendan. Uh, I, I like Brendan. My son's named after him. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when you mentioned the name, I yeah. thought, I think yep. of Brendan, right? Yep. Yeah. And the other one is Columbanus. Uh, Columbanus studied under Finian. So we have three with Excuse names. Excuse me, not Columbanus, Columba. Yeah, but we have three with very similar names. Can you sort of... So we've got Columba, we've got Columbanus. Columba is a guy I mentioned earlier. I'm coming back to him now. We've got Columbanus. We have two Finians, though. Okay. (laughs) And there's a Quran the Younger and a Quran the Elder. I mean, you know, they're... they're, So in any event, um, Columba studies with Finian uh, of Clonard and then does some traveling around, ends up with a different Finian, uh, doing some studies with him. And this Finian had a copy of the Psalter. Hmm. And Columba, you know, now, Columba knew the Psalter. He had it memorized. But these these books are works of art that you would actually use the art in your meditation yeah. and things like that. Okay. So he asked Finian if he could borrow the Psalter to study the Psalter. And Finian agreed. You know, he had a student who was the son of a clan chieftain and all of that. And unbeknownst to Finian... Columbus secretly made a copy of the Psalter. Hmm. Then this was discovered, and Finian was incensed and demanded his copy back and Columbus. Hmm. And Columbus said, well, you can have your own, but I made this one. It's mine. Yeah. Um, according to the legend, by the way, this was discovered because uh, one of Finian's assistants was peeking through a keyhole to see what Columba was doing. <laughs> and uh, Colum- Columba had a pet crane 
that actually poked its beak through the pe- the keyhole and put the guy's eye out. Oh no! Um, <laughs> that's what you. That's why you need a pet crane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> keep but it, uh, keep the uh, NSA, the folks from the National Security Association, or, or, or you know, folks. New St. Andrews. No. <laughs> <laughs> now the folks at New St. Andrews would never spy on you through a keyhole. Yeah. But the other guys, the National <laughs> they Security don't need Administration. Keyholes. <laughs> but but in any event, um, this w- actually went to court. Wow. And the court decided in Finian's favor. It said to every cow its calf and to every book its copy. Interesting. And Columbo was upset, according to the story. He was upset, and he wasn't going to turn this over. And his clan went to war with Finian's clan over this book. Over copyright. Right. And um, Columbus... You know, this, is, this is like the patron saint of authors versus the patron saint of publishers, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so Columba, Columbus' clan won... But he was sort of distraught at the number of people who were killed in the battle. And the Irish uh, leaders got together and they exiled Columba. Huh. They kicked him off the, the uh, Ireland and said, you can't return until you have converted as many people as died in that battle. Interesting. Uh, so he then, went to, he then went to Iona, which is the first <laughs> island that you come to across the Irish Sea that you cannot see Ireland from. And he formed his, set up his monastery on Iona. And from there, he evangelized Scotland, Northern England. At this point, he's allowed to return to Ireland. He sets up monasteries at Kells and a whole bunch of other places okay. and starts a family of monasteries known as a Perugia. Is this where the Book of Kells? The Book of Kells was copied on Iona, hmm. but okay. when the Viking raids started, it was taken to Kells to try to protect it. Yeah, huh. yeah. So Glad they did. And, and in, in fact... The site that legend says was Columbus Scriptorium has been identified on Iona, hmm. and they've done archaeology there, and they discovered, in fact, that there was a 6th century building there, Columbus period, um, and I think they even found some evidence of uh, remains that would be consistent with it being a scriptorium. Hmm. So Columbus still continued his copying activities uh, at his own monastery. Yeah, publishing the, went on. The... the the um, way in which the, the artwork with the text, what was the kind of, I've, I've always been impressed by, what was kind of the historical significance of that for, because they, the decorating of the Bible and that's where you get well, a lot of the... Some, some of it was simply a matter of thinking that, the, believing that the text itself deserved that kind of treatment. It deserved the yeah. absolute best you could give it. Yeah. But some of it as well, I think, is that the the artwork and the beauty was intended to inspire the reader, the viewer, mm-hmm. um, and to enhance the meditation. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the, um, and on another level, there's a thing called the Armagh Chalice that was found. Hmm. It's a large, beautiful piece of, of uh, mostly silver with, with gems on it. Hmm. But when you take the Armagh Chalice and lift it's used for communion. When you take it to lift it up to drink from it, when you get it up, it turns out there is a crystal, a, a gemstone crystal, yeah. at the bottom of it, so that when you lift it up and the wine touches your lips, you get this burst of light coming through the bottom. Ah, interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's intended. Yeah. All these things are intended to heighten your ex- your your yeah. experience, to illuminate you, to open your mind, yeah. to recognize truth and beauty and goodness where you see it and the spiritual reality of what you're dealing with. And there was, I mean, this is something I was just reading uh, recently, I was rereading some of the fathers, but the strong emphasis on the holistic nature of our spirituality, 
even though it has this contemplative dimension, it, it's, it's that all of our senses are a part. This is why you have the incense and the, and the, and the various things. And, and color and light become so significant. The light comes into the world, um, Christ bodily, but the whole, whole embodied participant in worship is supposed to be communicated to. Right. And, and that's behind a lot of the decorations in those texts. Light, by the way, is also critical to the Gothic aesthetic. Yes. Which is why you get flying buttresses so you can open the walls for stained glass windows. Hmm. That's a good part, point to bring it to a, <laughs> a conclusion. I think that's a, that's a good way to kind of end it. Uh, we've kind of gone a little bit along, a little bit long and be good to wrap it up. But anyway, that, that's been great. Great stuff, Glenn. It's been very informative. It's a lot yeah. of things I didn't know. Yeah. Anyway, um, well, we're glad you uh, tuned in to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your support, your interest. Uh, the audience continues to grow. We've talked about this many times, how astounded we are by that fact. And folks have been giving to the show, and some folks have even tried to give and can't figure out how to do it. <laughs> and we're trying to figure out how they can do it. <laughs> right. But uh, we do appreciate all the folks who care about the show and go out of their way to let us know. And uh, anyway... I don't know if there's anything else to say, but uh, this, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.